I haven't seen you before. I want to extend a real hearty, excited welcome to all of you. You have no idea what it means to look out and see some faces full of expectation. And we trust that you've all come for one reason, one reason only today, and that is to hear the Word. To hear the Word of God as it was God-breathed to men of old. You've come for that reason today, and I trust that on each one of your hearts, if there's been a prayer, that it will not speak to right and left, but to each and every one of us. With that in mind, I'd like for you to take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1. In order to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today, I would like for you to all try to go with me in your mind's eye to a time when I'm sure you've had an imminent separation with someone you love. Maybe it's a child who's going to the high school for the first time. Maybe it's a child going off to college, an extended period of separation. Perhaps you've known a loved one who's on a deathbed, and perhaps you've had a loved one go away to the military, not knowing if they'd ever return from the hostilities. With that thought in mind, I'm sure that each and every one of us would want to save for that final parting comment that which we would want to hold true, that which we would want to stick fast in the mind of the person to whom we were saying it. And with that in mind, we come to Acts chapter 1. Jesus Christ, we know, had come some 2,000 years ago. He'd stepped across the stars, the heavens, the planet Earth. He was born in the little village of Bethlehem, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He lived a sinless life, uniquely sinless, I might add. And now he offered himself on the cross for us, shed his blood, that through this atonement, we as sinful man might come face to face by faith through this atonement before a God who is a consuming fire and must judge sin. He had 40 days post-resurrection ministry, and now he's getting ready to depart. And as he's gathered here, we have the scene on the Mount of Olives. It's on the Mount of Olives, which is outside the city of Jerusalem. He's talking with his disciples. And they ask him a question. But after they ask him the question, he gives them what is his final command. And in each one of our minds, we need to know that that command that he gave them, their final marching orders for those of you who have been in the military, this they are to do, that command has never been negated. It's never been altered. It's never been changed. It's never been withdrawn. It comes down the corridors of time 2,000 years ago right now, today, to this group, to every group gathering throughout the face of the earth that call themselves born-again Christians. And that command you will find in number in verse 8. Look at verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That is the command. We are to be his witnesses. Now you'll note, verse 8 begins with the word but. 
but we do not normally walk up to people and say, but are you having a nice day? It is tying it to something. It's a connective word. So to understand Jesus' command, we have to understand what was their question. But look into verse 6. When they therefore were come together, and this is on the Mount of Olives, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now I want to underscore in your thinking. They're not thinking of some high in the sky, mystical, magical utopia. The disciples, correctly knowing the Old Testament scriptures, are asking, are you going to establish an earthly, tangible, political kingdom with you as the head at this time? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, you're wrong. You got it all wrong. I need to straighten out your theology. You've misunderstood me. He doesn't say that, does he? The kingdom is going to come, but it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, just as it is not for us to know the times or the season when that millennial kingdom will be ushered in. But we are to be his witnesses. Now, if we want to know what they are talking about, if we want to know how to put this in context, we need to know what it is that they mean when they ask about the kingdom. To do that, we need to go back to the Gospels. You all know there are four of them. Matthew primarily deals with Jesus Christ as the king. Mark deals with him as the servant. Luke as man. John as God. Matthew, king, Mark, servant, Luke, man, John, God, primarily. In the beginnings of these books, you can all look back and it's filled full with meaning. In Matthew, it begins a genealogy through David, through Abraham. David was the first divinely appointed king of Israel to show that Jesus Christ has the right to rule as an heir of his. Abraham, faithful Abraham, brought the Jewish nation into existence through his, through his loins. And Jesus was to be his seed, promised, already in Genesis chapter 3. Mark... You find no genealogy. Who, after all, needs the genealogy of a servant? Who worries about that? Jesus Christ came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give himself a ransom for many. Luke begins with a genealogy dating back to Adam. He is the son of man, the incarnate, or in the flesh, God, the son of man. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And we all know in John, beautifully, wonderfully, poetically, powerfully, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now, to understand the question of the kingdom, we need to turn back to the gospel of the King. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 1, please. The first of the Gospels, the first book of the New Testament, Malachi to Matthew, M&M. Good way to remember that. Matthew. And we go to the first verse. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, filled full with meaning. David, the first divinely appointed king of Israel. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the father of faith. 
introduced faith as an operative principle as to how all men must come to God, whether it be by sacrifice in the Old Testament or whether it be by the blood of Jesus Christ in the New. Jesus, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is his name. In Old Testament, in, New Te- in the first century Palestine, the name signified what he would do, what his purpose was. Jesus means salvation, for he will save men from their sins. Verse 24, I believe, says, you can call his name Emmanuel, from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Mark it, check it out sometime. For unto us a son is born, a virgin, kept, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us, named Jesus, can produce salvation. And only in him and through him can we come before a holy God with a consuming fire. Jesus Christ. Christ is not a name. It is not a name. It's a title. Like president, doctor, prime minister. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, is what that means. In the Old Testament, there were people anointed to be prophets. There were people anointed to be priests. There were people anointed to be kings. Jesus Christ uniquely was anointed, one, to be prophet, priest, and king. And in the fullness of this office, every single need of the human heart can be met. To the question, what about this crazy, mixed-up world, sin-sick, full of crime, all sorts of licentious living, is there anything that I can grasp hold of? Is there any objective truth to which I can cling? Yes. You're the prophet of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. To the question, but what about me? I'm unsaved. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm full of sin. I have no power. What can I do? Is there any hope for me? Yes. The high priest, he offered himself a sacrifice, one sacrifice for sin forever. For all who will come to him by faith. But what about equity? How about justice? Will there ever come a time when the lion will lie down with the lamb? Will there ever be a time when the instruments of war will be beat into instruments for farm implementation? Yes! In the millennial kingdom, there will be. Yes, he will usher in that kingdom. So we come to the book of Matthew, and here he is, the one to whom everything in the Old Testament has been pointing. Jesus Call his name Jesus because he will save Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, through whom every need can be met. And then we go into a genealogy. And if you check out verse 17, so the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the carrying away into Babylon are 14. And the carrying away from Babylon to Christ are 14 generations. And most say, well, this helps in the memory. But no, there's more to it than that. From Abraham, faith was instituted as an operating principle. To David, the first divinely appointed king, from that point to that point, Israel rose to its greatest heights of exaltation. Their borders were secure. They had peace and prosperity. And then from David to the Babylonian captivity, as the people turned from Jehovah, their God who had brought them out of bondage, as they went into practices of idolatry, as it became sinful, as they turned their back on their creator and the one who had brought them into existence, 
they sank lower and lower and lower until the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed their civilization and carried them off into captivity. And with that image in Daniel chapter 2, look it up sometime, you find the times of the Gentiles begin. And we incidentally are still in that time because Jerusalem shall be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You can find that in the Gospel of Luke, verse 24, chapter 21. Jesus himself said it. So, from that time to Jesus Christ was the last 14 generations. And if chapter 1 lists his genealogy and his birth, chapter 2 then would list the preservation of the king because we know that a seed was promised to the woman that would cause the serpent's head to be crushed, ultimate victory over the devil. And that was to come into the world through the person, the seed of Jesus Christ. And so Satan was anxious to, to see to it that this plan was thwarted. He had to keep Jesus from the cross of Calvary. And so the most logical thing you do right away, kill the baby once it's born. So the wise men come asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And who did he ask that of? He asked it of Herod the Great, who was a wicked, cruel, horrible tyrant of a king. The Jews of the first century had a saying, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because he killed off anything and anyone who challenged his right to sit on the throne. Which was not, as an Israelite, he wasn't even a Jew. He was placed in power and kept in power by hated Rome. So, when they came to him, where is he who is born king? You notice they don't say born to be. He was born king. Never before or since has that ever happened when one was born king. So they go to worship him. And God, through his angelic messenger, tells Joseph to flee. Flee in Egypt. And the child was miraculously spared. Chapter 3, we come, bear in mind, the king, the preservation of the king. Now we have the herald of the king. In an eastern culture in first century Palestine, any time the kings traveled, they had someone to go before them as a herald saying, Clean up your doorstep. The king is going to pass by. Get your act together, so to speak. John the Baptist served that divine function for the king which was coming to the nation Israel. And what was John's message? Simply repent. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just so we're all sure we know what we're talking about. If God is here, if Jesus and righteousness is here, and we're going this way, the way of darkness, of sin, of degradation, our eyes are off the light. To repent means to turn around, turn from that to come to God. It's a turning. And whether it be under the old covenant of sacrifice or the new covenant of grace, we can only come to God with a repentant heart through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. Repent, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John was saying. And John wasn't talking about a physical cleansing like the other heralds of the kings were. He was talking about a spiritual cleansing. And he had great throngs coming to him, being baptized with water. And he said, there is one coming after me that will baptize you with fire much greater than me, of whom I am not even worthy to unlatch his shoes. John knew his role. So the herald of the king comes. And then in chapter 4, it's almost as the Holy Spirit is moving us through time. He says, let's take 
this king now and take him and confront him with Satan. Jesus has led of the Holy Spirit to be tempted. Forty days of the devil. In a fasting state, Satan throws everything in his power at him. And why does this have to be? Because when the first man, Adam, was confronted with sin in the Garden of Eden, he flunked, didn't he? He yielded. He got the big F on his test, and the image into which he was created was marred. And every human being that has ever come upon the face of the earth since that time is born to the sin and needs a redeemer. So if the second man, Adam, Jesus Christ, cannot confront Satan and come away victorious, he can be no Messiah at all. Rather, he would have need of redemption himself. He comes away gloriously triumphant. Gloriously triumphant. Uniquely so in the history of mankind. Uniquely so in the history of flesh and blood. And then we go to chapters 5, 6, and 7, which all of you will recognize as a sermon on the mount. The Beatitudes started out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or happy are the poor in spirit, and so on and so on and so on. And Jesus is saying in these three chapters, If the one prerequisite is met, i.e. repentance, I will gloriously usher these things in, in my kingdom. Chapters 6, I mean 7, 8, and 9. Check them out. Now we have the credentials of the king. He's given the characteristics fundamentally of his kingdom, both present and future, some aspects of each. Now he comes on the scene and says, if you repent, if you rid yourselves of your ungodliness and receive me as your righteous king, here is what I will do. And he demonstrates by miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Quite in contrast, I might add, to our present-day politicians who promise everything, but when they are in, they give us our page. Jesus says, if you do this, I will do this, and demonstrated that he had the power to do it. So he is the king by error. He is the king by demonstrating his power over sin. He is the king by divine recognition. John the Baptist pointed him out, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Now he is the king by demonstrating he has power over sin. He has power over the elements. He has power over disease. He has power over everything because if they rightfully interpreted who it was, he was God in the flesh. Chapter 7, 8, and 9. And then we come to chapter 10, 11, and 12. He is beginning to get great multitudes following him. Chapter 10, he sends his disciples out two by two. Consistency of the message, repent. They went out, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. Hammer that into your heads. That's the one thing that was required for him to usher in the kingdom at that time. Two by two they go out. And as the multitudes grow, as they start to flock to him, official Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, you name it, on and on and on, as this popular support grows, this support dies out. And they say, we have a big problem on our hands here. This man is taking away our popular support. He was exposing their sin of hypocrisy, of ritualism. He was trying, he was trying to show them that his kingdom is to be within. As we all, I presume, know today that it is to be within us and not tied to any particular religious system or any set of rituals. Repent. 
And as official condemnation heaps up, he ends chapter 11 beautifully with something we should all commit to memory. Chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Think how often we want to be have rest. How often we're tired. How often we're weary. How often we're discouraged. Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Be paired with me upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what separates we as Christians from every other world religion that has ever existed. We are a system which relies upon everything God has already done for us. Every other system is a system of human works to gain righteousness before a holy God. And never the twain shall meet in that case. Chapter 11. Who are my brothers and sisters? Not his flesh and blood, but he who does the will of the Father. Check out the last verse. That is his mother and brother and sisters. So, officially, the nation Israel is rejecting him because the religious leaders do not like to have their sin exposed. They are becoming more vicious more out to do nothing but to discredit him before the people. And the deeper and deeper they sink into this condemnation and morass of, of nonsense, the more Jesus withdraws and tells his disciples, begins in earnest to prepare them for the work which they must carry out. But keep in mind, we're talking about the king. We're talking about the kingdom. They still see him as one who is going to lead them in rebellion against hated Rome. They saw this correctly from the Old Testament times to throw off the bondage, to throw off the oppressors, to to bring themselves back into his love, into the covenant under which God had given them. And Don is leaving not because he doesn't want to listen. He told me earlier. (laughs) See you next week, Don. (laughs) So in chapter 13, we do have a changing of the guard. Jesus begins to speak with them in parables. Chapter 12 ends with they accuse him of being satanic. Can you imagine that? Satanic. And he says, no way. A house divided against itself isn't going to stand. If I'm satanic, why are you against me? He says, he issues another invitation and then goes into chapter 13. We might label that the parables of the kingdom. And in these parables, Jesus sets forth the characteristics of the age in which we are living. The parables were actually an act of judgment upon unbelief. He would throw out an earthly story, and alongside that, he would throw out an eternal, heavenly principle. Those who saw him for what he was as the king, as the incarnate creator of the universe, could understand the principle. Those who could not understand that, they sank deeper deeper into unbelief because they only were coming to discredit him or they were only coming to have their bellies filled parables were an act of judgment and in another time we fully developed these parables beautiful describing in totality the church age in which we are living so he moves on quickly then and we come to chapter 16 the disciples still are wondering When is the kingdom going to come? They see the crowds growing. Jesus is telling them, teaching them, but their understanding is yet limited. They don't understand that he must die. 
And in chapter 16, we have the great confession. Jesus was out with his disciples and asked them, Who say the people that I am? And they say, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Well, he says, Who do you say I am? Who do all of you say he is today? And Peter, beautifully, and I think in a way that probably even surprised him, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'll bet Peter said, when he said that, Jesus said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, Peter. Upon that confession, I will build my church. And if anyone comes preaching any message to you other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the Apostle Paul says in the book of the Galatians, let him be anathematized, and that means let him be accursed. Flesh and blood does not reveal that to man. The Holy Spirit working in our hard hearts reveals to us that that is the only way to approach a holy God who is a consuming fire with our sinfulness, and that is to have it buried in the blood. But after this confession, Jesus begins. Four occasions, he tells them that he must die. And they understood none of those things. Their eyes were blinded yet. They see him for who he is in part, but they still are blinded to the kingdom. The kingdom fever is coming. We know in the Gospel of John, the crowds even tried to take him by force one time and make him to be king. But they understood it not. And in chapter 20, or is it chapter 19, Jesus has an encounter with an all-American lad. The type of person every one of us would like to have living next door, particularly we had a teenage daughter. He was young. He was rich. He was moral. He was willing. He was aggressive. And he comes to Jesus and says, Good Master, what good thing may I do to inherit eternal life? Or what can I do to please you? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Don't you realize who I am? He didn't say that, but that's the implication. Nevertheless, if you want to do something, keep the commandments. Which ones? And he enumerates some of them. Well, all of these things have I kept since my youth up. He's a good guy, aren't I? Jesus said, okay. He says, what lack I yet? Jesus says, okay. If you want to please me, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And that young man walked away, not mad, not rejected. Not bitter, he he walked away sad because he had great possessions. And when this happened, it blew the minds of the disciples. They said, if we're going to lead an army in rebellion against Rome, we need bodies, we need manpower. Why would you turn him away? They didn't understand, did they? Jesus said, not many rich, not many wise. If he doesn't qualify, who does? was in the minds of the disciples. And Peter said, but how about us, Lord? We chucked it all. We had our boats. We had our homes. We had our self-respect. We chucked it all and followed you. And he says to you, I believe quite literally, will be given to reside over the tribes of Israel in my millennial kingdom. But I'm sure they were thinking of present tense and not future. In chapter 20, he is preaching down at Jericho, near the Dead Sea. The lowest point in the earth. And he comes out by the wayside, a huge multitude of people. 
huge multitudes following him. And along the roadside, there were two blind beggars who cried out, Have mercy upon us, thou son of David. Have mercy upon us, thou son of David. King, have mercy upon us. And the people said, Shh, don't bother him. They rebuked him. But they cried the more, Have mercy on us, thou son of David. And what does Jesus do? He stops. And he says, What wilt thou that I do for you? Our eyes, Lord, that we may see. And he had compassion on them. And like that, they saw. Please don't miss the divinely intended contrast between the rich young ruler and these two blind beggars. The rich young ruler came saying, What good thing may I do? And Jesus says, So all you have. That man went away blind because he wanted to do it. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my soul. Borat. For those of you who remember the draft days, he was disqualified. Unsuitable for service. The blind beggar said, Have mercy upon me, thou son of David. And they went away seen, didn't they? Check it out. That's the only way we're going to come to Jesus Christ. Ever. Have mercy upon me. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. God help us if we ever pervert that simple message. Have mercy upon us, thou son of David. Don't miss it. Chapter 21, probably one of the most misunderstood texts in all the word of God. If you have a Bible open to it, you're probably going to see it labeled the triumphal entry. And in reality, it was devastating defeat for Jesus. Kingdom fever is building to a fever pitch. A great Jewish holiday, the Passover. Historians would tell us that over a million Jews would gather back into the land for the Passover. And here they are on the Mount of Olives. They can hear the sounds. They can smell the smells. They can see the sights as kingdom fever is building up. What more perfect time to lead an army in rebellion against Rome than now? while they're up there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, go get the colt. Now that doesn't mean much to us. But these were Jews. They were looking for the kingdom. They had cut their teeth on Zechariah 9, 9. Check it out. It says, Behold, thy king cometh lowly and riding on a donkey. I wonder, did they walk to get that donkey or did they sprint? This is it. It's going to happen now. The kingdom is finally going to come. We're going to throw out the Romans. Boot them out. But what was the prerequisite? What had to happen? Repentance. And we're going to see that at the heartbeat of the Jewish nation, the temple, if repentance has occurred, it will be evident there. They put him on the colt. They ride down the Kidron Valley up to the eastern gate. And along the way, what happens? Crowds appear. They wave palm branches. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save now. Save now, thou son of David. The palm branches was another thing. The colt all indicated that a king was coming. The people knew it. But he walks into the temple. And what did he find? He found the changers of money. And he found the seller of animals. And what does that mean? 
It means that the nation Israel, the Jewish religious leaders, were corrupt. They were vile. Why? Because when they came back to the temple, they had to use Jewish currency, and they were ripping the people off in their exchange from their other lands. They had to buy an animal for sacrifice. It couldn't be any animal. It had to be one without spot or blemish that met the criteria of the high priest. So they had to sell them an animal. They were ripping them off in currency. They were ripping them off in the animals. And the people were having a burden grievous to be born here. And Jesus, in righteous indignation, turns over the tables. He drives them out. And from the depths of his soul, he says, My father's house was to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And he withdraws. Chapter 23 at the end. He withdraws. He pronounces judgment. And from the depths of his soul, weeping bitterly, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee as thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How is that? Lovingly, tenderly, protectively, providingly, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, which means there is no glory there anymore, and you shall not see me henceforth until you shall say, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was devastating defeat for Jesus Christ in terms of his earthly kingdom. They had not repented. Within hours, within hours, a plan was set in motion that would culminate in the creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, being brutally, unmercifully nailed to the cross and killed. And the irony with that, the dreams and the hopes and the aspirations and the longings of the disciples came to a sudden halt. They had chucked everything. They had followed him. They'd given up everything, and now he was dead. And the irony of the situation was he didn't die of leprosy. He didn't fall off of a cliff. He didn't get run over by a chariot. He wasn't mugged in a side street. He was killed as a common criminal, the most brutal death ever imagined by man on a Roman cross. The very people he came to overthrow in their minds, they were devastated. But what happened? On the third day, he came out of the tomb. He's alive! Can you imagine from here to hear the heights of exaltation these disciples must have felt? And for 40 days, 40 days, he ministered unto them post-resurrection. At the end of those 40 days, there was another major Jewish holiday. Another major Jewish holiday. There were another million people back in the land. Check out your history books. They were back. Mount of Olives. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. Everything we've been saying now is leading back to this point. They've gone from the depths of despair to the heights of exaltation. Their understanding is as yet incomplete. And they ask him another question. Again, they say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? Why did they ask that? A free translation might be, Oh, we were so foolish. Our understanding was so incomplete. We should have seen it. 
We should have heard from your teachings that you had to die, that your blood had to be shed for our sins. We should have seen it, but now we do, Lord. We understand that the only way to approach a holy God that is a consuming fire is through the righteousness that is in your shed blood and the payment for our sins which was made on that cross of Calvary. We understand it now, Lord, but wilt you at this time restore the kingdom? They were still looking for it, weren't they? Jesus sets them straight now. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed into his own power. And we don't know either. We know it's coming. He didn't say it wouldn't come. We know it's coming. It's not for us to know the time. But between that point and whenever it is that Jesus Christ returns again, we, the church, are to be his witnesses. In Judea, in in Jerusalem, in Judea, spreading out from Jerusalem, in Samaria, spreading out, and to the uttermost parts of the earth that must have blown their minds. Those men had never traveled more than 70 or 80 miles in their life. But you are to be my witnesses universally. The church age was about to be ushered in 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given to mortal man. The same spirit which lives and thrives and breathes in each one of us, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, empowering us to serve Him, serve Him in spirit and in truth. And we are to be His witnesses. Just as the church age was ushered in there, today, each and every one of us is a part of a new beginning. A new beginning. A new beginning of fellowship, not a new beginning of church. The same message which went forth to those apostles comes down the quarter of time to us today. There is one way to come to God through a repentant heart, through faith in the redemptive work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And let's let it be resolved today, each and every one of us, that just as the disciples had a new beginning, they were to usher in the church age, we are starting over. We are starting over. We leave the past behind. And we stretch forth to that high and heavenly goal that lies before us. And let's let it be resolved in each and every heart today that if we do not know God as Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, that not another day will go by. Because we can't call Him Dad until we're a joint heir with His Son. No way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Be it resolved. Today we have a new beginning. Each and every one of us in some way. That we will love the Savior. That we will serve Him. We will be His witnesses. In life. In deed. In thought. In reverence. In word. Be it resolved today. I love each and every one of you. Thank you so much for coming. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Our Father, little can we express what this means to us today, that we can gather around your word, the life-giving, God-breathed word which came down to faithful men of old through the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. We plead, Father, that Thou will bless this group, and not only the group, but each and every individual who is here. 
We plead that if there are any here today who do not know thee as Father through the redemptive work of thy Son, that not another day would pass before we would all know thee in spirit and in truth and know the security and the order that comes with salvation in Jesus Christ. We praise thee, Father. We thank thee. And we now commit our lives to serving thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our Savior, we pray. Amen.